Namo tassa bhagavato arahato asama sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato asama sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato asama sambuddhasa Buddhang damang sanghang namasami Well, it's lovely to see so many people, and I hope, uh, welcome, welcome to newcomers. I can't necessarily differentiate between the newcomers and the not newcomers, so a warm-hearted welcome to everyone. Um, it's been a wonderful visit up here. This is the first time I've been in this area, and I'm just really delighted, delighted uh, to be here and to uh, just feel the sense of commitment of the practitioners here. It's, I visit many different groups, and um, you know, in, a, in an hour, you can't tell a whole lot, but we do get a sense of being able to intuit certain things, and one of the things that I can intuit is, is that there's a, there's a lot of long-standing practitioners uh, who've been at it for a while, and there's a, a sense of cohesiveness about the community, which is really a lovely feeling to walk into. So... Um, that's a it's a good sign that there's uh, so much commitment and, and a long-standing interest to practice practice together. Um, the topic of this evening's talk is on uh, community's path, and uh, it's an interesting topic to contemplate because oftentimes in the vipassana community we think the cushion as path, you know, solitude and silence as path. And we don't actually think necessarily about the community as, a, as, a, as an aspect of what needs to be cultivated in our practice. And yet what I thought I'd talk about this evening is a couple of different experiences that I've had or I've heard about of different community living situations. Uh, the forest model as an example, and then also talk a little bit about my project and what I'm uh, envisioning. And just see how all of this resonates in your own experience or your own sense. Um, I have been in Australia. I've spent a couple of years there, and there was a time when I was there I was wandering as a, as a nun, and I was spending time in different places. And one of the places that I spent time at was a community that had been established for about 30 years. And it was a community that was based on both environmental and Dhamma principles. So they had a meditation hall, in the kind of community area, and they had a retreat center on the ridge top area that they hadn't been using for a while because the main person who was the teacher had long since outgrown it. You know, it could handle about 12 or 14, and his retreats were, you know, 100, 150, 200 kind of size. The principle of the community was sound, and they got together, they got a piece of land, I don't know, it was 150 acres or so, and it was an organic farming community, and uh, and so as an eco-community, the, the, one of the things that they really valued was to have all of the houses be built on um, green principles. So they had no septic systems. They were all composting toilets. They had an organic farm. And, you know, so they had a community structure and different, different things within it. And, and uh, I spent six weeks there. And again, six weeks is not, is not a long enough time because communities go through cycles. And you can't really know what a community is about until you've seen it cycle through 
different cycles. So, you know, you go in for six weeks and it's like a snapshot, you know, in a river moving. And you need to be there for a while to get a feeling of the different seasons of a community. But nevertheless, for the six weeks that I was there, I was really impressed with their skillfulness in learning how to meet each other, how to respond to things that were arising, and to deal with conflict. And while I was there, there was a huge thing that had happened, and something that in in most situations would completely tear a community asunder between the people who were for and the people who were against. And yet, because of their um, dedicated commitment to process and conflict resolution and meeting each other and seeing each other um, as human beings beneath issues, they were actually able to hold this conflict that in many, many communities would have just ripped it to shreds. And I was, I was impressed. Well, as it turned out, what had happened was, is the founder, who had been there since the beginning, you know, they started the community, and ten years into it, which is about the right time for communities, they were at each other's throats. And, you know, it was so horrendous that it was like either she needed to leave, move out, or they needed to develop some kind of skills to deal with the conflicts that were arising, because what was happening was just um, harmful. So she trained as a conflict mediator, developed a tremendous amount of skills herself, and brought those skills into the community. And some of the other members of the community also were interested in developing conflict mediation skills so that they began to use the conflict that they were in the middle of as a focus for their practice, which stimulated a tremendous amount of skills and community uh, (laughs) consciousness that hadn't been there before. So my little snapshot, you know, of what I saw was skill, uh, welcome, uh, responsiveness, uh, appropriate boundaries, and a sense of something that was actually quite vital and alive and uh, 30 years on the road. And there were, well, she was the only one that was there from the beginning, but there were some people who'd been there for 15, 17, 20 years. And as a community with it, the significant members of the community had built their own houses on the property, there was quite a commitment in in being part of this thing. It was not a small thing. So I was, you know, I took note, you know, notice this, you know, this is worth noting. <clears throat> then um, I was at a teacher's meeting this summer in at Gaia House, and uh, Charles Genoux was describing... A, uh, a situation that he had been invited to, um, and I cannot remember the name, so forgive me. This was in Italy, and this was a dance troupe, okay, a dance group, and they absolutely exquisite. They had the philosophy that everything in life is a performance. That any time you are relating to people, you are performing a certain role or a certain kind of certain thing. And their dance group was based around the principle of absolute, complete authenticity where there was no performance. That was their performance, no performance. And they came together to train, and the teacher was ruthless, absolutely ruthless. So if the teacher asked to sing a song, 
The asking to sing a song was to sing a song with pure authenticity. And he would stop you 50 times in the course of an hour and tell you to start again if he detected any sense of, of, of showmanship, of seduction, of anything at all that had the slightest demarcation of inauthenticity or performance in the old sense. And what Charles was describing was is that here was a group of people who didn't have a shrine, they didn't have rituals, they didn't have a meditation practice per se, but when they came into the dance theater, which was where the work was taking place, everyone was electric with presence and a clarity to be absolutely clear and pristine about what was happening and how they were responding to it. And he said it was like, and the people, the quality, the caliber of the work that they were doing was so um, deep. He did a meditation instruction with them, and as a result of the, of the, of the preparation, the, their life work, what they did in meditation was, to him, very impressive because their whole lifestyle was based around a, an honesty that for most people wouldn't be able to tolerate. So he was there witnessing this one woman who was asked to sing a song and was interrupted 50 times, and afterwards she said, well, why didn't you want to murder him, you know? Like, that would be the natural response, is just to kill him. Or, like, or just to say, you know, this is just too much, I'm getting out of here. And she was really clear. She said because she knew that in order to stay in the work, you had to be willing to surrender to the process. Okay? So here was a group of people who were committed to absolute authenticity and presence. And their way of doing it was in theater. All right? But when I heard this, I had shivers up and down my spine. It was like, yes, you know, this is exactly what is needed in our lives and in our practice, you know. So they had an agreement. And in fact, you had to, I mean, you had to be willing to be up to the task to be part of this group. And ironically enough, or or in synchronicity or congruence with their values, this was a dance group that did not perform because their performance was their work. It was not to make it public in any way. And that's what they did. And they spent life, they spent years doing this, you know. So I thought, well, okay, so this is also an example of community and commitment and an interest in practice in a way that I was really impressed with what I heard was happening for them, okay? But it was obviously very uncomfortable to be part of it because you were, you were, you were, your stuff was mirrored to you in a way where the sense of irritation or discomfort, you had to be able to negotiate that in order to tolerate the process. You had to be able to. But when Charles described what his experience was when he walked into this room of this group and the presence and the unposturing it was like, you know, there is something that's happening here which is really worth paying attention to. It's very impressive. 
Now, the forced monastic model is a model from, like, the way Ajahn Shah used to organize his monasteries was is that they were oftentimes in the forests, and there would be a community building like a meditation hall, and there would be a kitchen, and there would be a... Uh, there would be buildings to have showers and sh- toilets like that. And then mostly the monks were living in huts in the forest, solitary huts that didn't have plumbing, electricity. Uh, they were just very simple. And uh, they would spend a lot of time in community. So they would work together, and they would meditate together, and they would eat together, and they would go on alms round together. So alms round is when they take their alms bowls and walk through the villages and collect the alms that was given. And then, um, then there would be occasions during the day where they have time in solitude. So that model of the way Ajahn Chah used to work it was is that he would encourage enormous amount of interaction with people as part of the normal lifestyle, in addition to having meditation vigils and all the rest of that. Now, one of the blessings of a monastery in that kind of a way is it's like it creates an oasis where people can participate in in many, many, many different ways. So the Vipassana scene is basically organized around people coming together and sitting quietly, and that's what what happens. So there's a five-minute break, and there's a few announcements, and people say hello, and all the rest of that. But basically, the whole sense of it is, is around coming and sitting quietly and then going. Yeah, so that the sense of contact is not through relationship, but through silence. Okay, in a monastery, there's all kinds of things that need to happen. There's things that need to be built, and things that need to be fixed, and there's cooking that needs to be done, and things that need to be cleaned, and so it functions as a community where the lay people and the monastics have a kind of flow in and out with each other, and yet the ways in which people are interacting is very diverse. It's not just about what happens in the meditation hall. It's about what happens all throughout the course of the day in order to make these things work. So my experience in living in the monasteries in England is is that there's a huge diversity of people who plug in and plug in at different levels. Some people love to work. So they show up for the garden days or show up for the forest days or show up to rake or show up to chainsaw or show up to stack the wood. And then there's some people that love to cook, and they help with the meals. And there are other people who are really good at organizing, and they're on the maintenance committee or on the work committee or on the this kind of committee. And there are other people where the only time you see them is for the Dhamma talk or on the retreats or the meditations, where they are not participating in the daily life, but they're actually just interested in the talk. And then the festival times is everybody comes out of the woodworks. So all the everybody's and all the different levels, they come together, and we have a rejoicing. So rejoicing, celebrating, is part of the culture. In our community life in England, we have learned that it is really important to develop community as part of the practice. Now, I have this sense whether this is correct or now or not, I don't know. But my sense is is that in Asian culture, people's identity is located around their community, around their family, around their clan, around their village, around their, I don't know. Their identity is not about being an individual person. It doesn't exist like that. 
I mean, we would have these funny stories at Amravati where, you know, we had a retreat center and sometimes we'd have a large group of Thai people coming to make an offering to the monastery and spend some time and do a little bit of meditation. And so, you know, we would assign them two to this room and three to that room and five to this room. And they would take the mattresses off of their rooms and come and all pile together in one room because it was like that's where they felt comfortable. They felt all comfortable being together, you know. And yet for Western people, it's like, you know, get me out of here, you know. (laughs) I want a silent room. I want my own room. I want my own space and my own bathroom. It's like I want my own, and I have all these reasons why I do want it, you know. So the needs of Westerners and the conditioning of Westerners is really different than the conditioning Mm -hmm. of Asian people. So in an Asian context, there is some sense, or at least my appreciation that when you take people from an Asian context and you put them in a hut for a month or two months or a year or three years, you're taking them from an embedded sense of a fabric of belonging and you're giving them an opportunity to reflect on who they are in another context. Okay? So in that culture, you know, solitude has a real value in terms of mirroring something that they're just not that familiar with working with yeah but you know we come to the monastery and I don't know anybody who's got an intact sense of belonging you know it's all somehow (coughs) fractured and so what is needed is to cultivate the community and to cultivate the sense of belonging to actually (coughs) learn how to see each other welcome each other meet each other so that the people who are coming can sense of relaxation, of that actually there's a place where they're welcome, where they're seen, where they're valued, where they belong. This community sense is phenomenally supportive in helping to mirror for the individuals their own goodness. So most of us have this kind of wallpaper of agitation or inadequacy or a sense of I'm not good enough or that I don't belong here. And it's like so normal we don't even actually notice that it's present because we don't have the contrast of when it's absent. And so one of the real functions that a community can can create is a loving environment that begins to mirror for each person their goodness, that then gives contrast to this kind of white static of being dislocated, not belonging, feeling inadequate, and like, it's not okay, who I am is not okay. Yeah? But it doesn't come by waving a magic wand. It comes by people actually being willing and interested to know each other, to value spending time with each other, and to seeing that this is actually a really important part of the practice. So over the decades that the monastery has been operating, you know, it's shifted from really valuing our solitude and thinking that committees and communication and all the rest of that was like, you know, the stuff that we all hated and just wanted to do in as small a period of time Mm -hmm. as possible to learning how to bring skills to committees and to community life and to communication and to speaking with each other and receiving each other, to seeing each other, to welcoming each other, 
so that our community grew in its sense of safety. And as the community feeling grew in its sense of safety, then the individuals in the community had an increased capacity to be able to do their own inner work. Because without that sense of safety, there's not ground to actually look and see what's there. So I would imagine that in this dance troupe, the sense of safety in that group was exceptionally high. Everybody in there had been through the same nightmare of having the teacher cut them off and ask them to start 50 times, 70 times, 100 times. They had gone through this process together of having to soul-search what their motivations were as to why he kept cutting them off until they could come into an authentic relationship with their own being and express that naturally. Okay, so it's like, what do you want? You know, it's not like anybody else can create this for you. It's up to you. This is your community. You need to decide what you want. What do you value? You know? So it's not, it's not like um, there's a big person who makes the decision and everybody follows. It's like everyone needs to come into contact with what do they think practice is about? And, and what do you actually want to do in your community? Now, I have um, friends who are in Michigan, and I've been kind of, it's been a little bit like a second home for me for many years now. And again, that community is a community that I feel really impressed with because the quality of loving and compassion is tangible. You come to their meetings, and it's like you can slice it with a knife. It's like you feel it, you know? And the way people know each other and the way people take care of each other and the way people enjoy hanging out with each other, it's like, it's not just about coming and sitting quietly together, you know? They have found ways to, you know, to do beadwork together, do dream work together, to do singing together. They go cross-country skiing together. They, they come and they, you know, when there's a tragedy, they are there for each other and not just in a kind of nicey-nice way but really touching the sorrow of what it is that they've just been through, you know? But again, it comes because of both valuing it, making time for it, and also seeing how it's related to the practice. So I just want to spend a few more minutes talking about the vision that I have, the project that I have, and gratefully the Awakening Truth Organization is well-formed and it's actually happening. It's not just an idea any longer. It's, it's, it's in place. There's, there's five board members and four advisors. And a, I mean, it's, 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 it's quite the happening thing. And, and, and the idea or the vision behind that is to take the blessings and the goodness that I have experienced from this forest tradition and bring them into a contemporary society that actually appreciates the interface between the psychological work that we're doing and the practice of transcendence that we're doing in a way where not only do the monastics benefit, but the lay people as well. Now, obviously, this is not a small project, and it's obvious that there's all kinds of things about this project that I haven't got a clarity in terms of how it's actually going to pan out. But in some ways, I think that's an asset. Because if it was all in my head, 
then it would just be about everybody fitting into my it'd be bit peer, bit pieces in my 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 play or my drama but because i don't have it all in my head i can see that it's going to require a collaborative envisioning in order for some of the stuff to take shape in terms of of structures in terms of power dynamics in terms of committees in terms of the lay interface lay teachers interface and what it actually looks like but the basic essence is as as a using the forest model as a as a kind of template and bringing it into this society postmodern world where issues like uh, gender equality and um, you know an understanding of diversity is just is commonplace you know You know, for many people, suffering is a gateway. And change doesn't happen <coughs> until there's a lot of suffering that precipitates it. And so when the group is okay enough, one thinks, you know, why fix something that isn't broken, you know? And so that's fair enough. But the other thing that can happen is there can be a connection with a vision of something that's bigger. So it isn't necessarily because one's going through the fire, but because one actually has a sense or a feeling of a potential of, of, of a greater level of connectedness, a greater level of embodying the practice in one's life, that can also be the motivation for change. <coughs> and so, whether it's one or the other, so my friend who was the founder of this community, who after 10 years and people being at each other's throats, decided something needed to change that catalyzed a quite a significant shift. With my friends in Michigan, it wasn't fire that catalyzed that. It was just the absolute clarity that with the practice, the practice actually translates into every part of your life. And that compassion needs to be a fundamental ingredient. And that isn't just a kind of wishy-washy idea, but the ability to meet each other, see each other, receive each other, and respond completely inappropriately to what is arising in the moment with each other. It was an understanding that that actually was part of practice, that was the kind of baseline that allowed that community to grow in the way that it did. So, these are some thoughts. I leave them with you. And open up the topic for conversation, for discussion, for questions, for comments. Thank you.